Hello, Dementia Matters podcast listeners. Thank you for returning to the podcast during this COVID-19 pandemic. I know you have a lot on your mind, and despite being at home, I know life is not easy. It's an understatement to say we are living in an extraordinary time, but whatever you want to call this ongoing experience, it is asking extraordinary things of us. And life doesn't just stop because of it, which is why this podcast continues. I want to pivot here on Dementia Matters and address important issues affecting those with cognitive impairment and those without during this COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. I cannot cover all the issues and frankly shouldn't. I encourage you to go to trusted sources for specific information, such as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, your state and local health department websites, and the Alzheimer's Association. You can also find resources on our website at adrc.wisc.edu, that's adrc.wisc.edu, and that of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute at wai.wisc.edu. For other interesting and important stories on the COVID-19 pandemic, I would recommend my colleague at UW Health, Dr. Jonathan Kohler of the Surgery Set Podcast, who has a special series called The Frontlines of COVID. We will include these links to all these resources in our show notes. For those of you affected by Alzheimer's disease or any cause of cognitive impairment, you know better than anyone that it takes a community to care for those affected and to work on the front lines of treatment, prevention, and cure. What we face with COVID-19 is no different. We all are needed in this fight, and I thank you for whatever it is that you're doing. Take care and be safe. Well, welcome back, Dr. Walsack, to part two of Dementia Matters. Uh, let me thank you again for, for doing the interview and for doing part one where we covered isolation. Uh, today, I'm hoping to talk with you about the anxiety and stress that can happen during the time of this COVID-19 pandemic, and hopefully hear from you different coping mechanisms or suggestions on how we can address this. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Glad to be back. So I guess to start with, can you explain the difference between a clinical anxiety disorder, such as generalized anxiety disorder, from something like fear or worry? Absolutely. That's a great way to start. Um, and it's, you know, what's important about this is thinking about what is our normal human experience versus something that might represent a problem and, and cause some distress or cause some problems with, with day-to-day living. So on the one hand, fear. Fear is, fear is completely normal. Um, it's a way of appreciating the stress in the environment and, and actually kind of organizing what's our response going to be. Uh, folks may remember from school kind of the flight or fight uh, response. Uh, there's actually it's a little more complicated now. It's fight or flight or freeze. So animals have different ways of responding to threats in in the environment. So you can run away, you can fight back, or actually pretty commonly is to just freeze. You know, if you make yourself uh, small and not moving, then maybe that threat threatening thing out there isn't going to isn't going to get you. So we have been finely tuned over millions of years to respond to those kinds of stressors. 
we have uh, adrenaline that starts coursing when when there's a stressful thing in the environment. Uh, our, our pupils dilate, our muscles tense to get ready for action. We start mobilizing glucose or sugar so that we can respond. So there's this whole cascade of events that's normal. You know, that's what it, it, we've evolved to respond to stress in that way. Um, and so that's why, you know, as you tiptoe closer to the edge of a cliff, you know, your heart rate might start uh, skyrocketing or you might start sweating or, uh, you know, you, you stand in front of a crowd of a of a hundred people at a wedding to give a toast. You know, your, your palms get sweaty and your mouth gets dry and all that. These are stressful situations and you're having a normal response to that situation. So we don't you know, we don't think that that's pathological or needs any treatment. We just recognize that that's, yep, that we are human beings, we're mammals, we're animals. That's how we respond to these stressful situations. Now, when that becomes excessive and causes a lot of distress or like you can't function from day to day, you you know can't go to work or can't pay your bills or can't take your medications or can't take care of your household or whatever it is, because the anxiety levels are so high, that crosses over then into something like generalized anxiety disorder, which is a condition where people worry all the time and trying to push those worries out aren't successful. Um, people feel tense. They don't sleep well. Their stomach hurts. Their head hurts. Um, they, they may be irritable. So that kind of whole cluster of symptoms plus problems with day-to-day living and distress is generalized anxiety disorder. And there are other anxiety disorders out there too, like panic disorder and, and so on. But the dividing line is really how much distress is this causing and is it causing problems with day-to-day living? Okay. And that last part is, is I think, a really key thing because there is a lot of fear and worry right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm just wondering, you know, how does, how does one know if that current feeling is problematic or, or simply just understandable, given the circumstances we all are facing right now? It's a great question. I mean, I think we're all in this uh, um, high level of stress and anxiety with, you know, new news every single day about the pandemic and new directions about what to do and uncertainty, too. Um, so, uh, you know, should I wear a mask in public or, or not? Perhaps by the time this airs, we'll know the answer to that. But, you know, right now there's, you know, there's still some confusion about that. So uncertainty leads to fear and anxiety as, as well. If you, you know, if you don't know what the right thing to do is, or what's going to be the outcome if I do X or Y, you know, that leads to some uncertainty as, um, as well. So I, I would, I mean, to answer your question, I mean, I would kind of fall back on, well, what's the impact this is having on your day-to-day life? Um, if you're still able to carry on with day-to-day life despite these stressors, then, you know, probably the, what you're experiencing is a normal stress response to all this. But if things are starting to kind of break down in day-to-day life, falling behind on tasks, um, affecting relationships, that would be another big thing. So if the stress is leading to irritability, that's causing a lot of relationship problems, um, that, you know, that'd be a source of concern. Uh, I, I think we'll touch later on depression, but if the anxiety is leading to some depression and hopelessness and, and certainly like any suicidal thinking or, you know, 
wishing that one were dead, that's, you know, that's when the alarm bell should be going off that, that this is not a normal reaction. Um, uh, I, I need help. You know, it seems to me that based on your, your last two responses, one of the most important things for us to do is really acknowledge how we're feeling, acknowledge the worry or the fear or the sadness, and then kind of take a step back and, and take a look at it to see if it's reasonable or not. And and even if and if it is, you know, whether we can control it or not, really move on from there. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that kind of self-reflection is really important in stressful situations. It um, helps with resilience. It helps with coping. And just as a bit of a tangent, I was looking at a paper that looked at the relationship between wisdom and loneliness. And you know, we probably don't have an official definition of wisdom, but it's probably some combination of knowing stuff, uh, but also uh, being able to self-reflect, being able to take other people's perspectives and kind of understand where they're coming from. Um, it's probably having some sense of like higher purpose and even, you know, spirituality. So folks who measured higher on wisdom, whatever, you know, however you measure that, uh, they, um, they were less prone to loneliness. Um, and I don't think it's a huge leap to say that they might also be less prone to having trouble with anxiety and depression. And so cultivating that ability to self-reflect is really important. And it's also a critical part of a lot of practices like mindfulness or meditation practices um, uh, are about reflection. Spiritual and religious practices are often about that as well. Uh, sort of stepping back, looking at the big picture, the larger meaning of, of, of things is, is really important. Um, when people lose that capacity for self-reflection, that's where we can see some struggles with depression and anxiety. And then in our interventions and how we help people with depression and anxiety, we will promote some of that ability to, to name emotions, to recognize emotions, um, and to not let the emotions get the better of us to, you know, sort of, know, yep, that's there. I'm feeling stressed right now. So what am I going to do about that? You know, in our prior episode, you also spoke about social media and potentially getting misinformation or bad information. Um, and and that probably be something that we could avoid if we're feeling particularly stressed or anxious, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the challenges now is just how hard it is to figure out, like, well, what is the right thing to do? And uh, just how big of a deal is this virus? And of course, it is a very big deal. Uh, but there are competing sources of information about this. Um, and so, you know, part one is what are reliable sources of information. So I think of things like the the government's CDC website or cdc.gov is a really good jumping off point. Um, and then, you know, things like social media are probably a little more mixed in terms of just how reliable those, um, those sources are. And, and any source, no matter how good it is, you really want to take it in moderation. So turning those things off and maybe even just rationing. Here's how much news I'm going to take in today. I'm going to, you know, for 20 minutes, tune in to whatever, um, or go to cdc.gov or whatever it might be. And just, that's my, that's my portion for the day. And then I'm going to turn it off and then I'm going to focus on other things like my relationships or exercise or, um, reading a good book or whatever the other things might be that are, that are beneficial. 
You know, something that you didn't mention, which I know about you from talking to you earlier, is that you have cats. And so pet therapy or just enjoying the presence of your pet, uh, what do you think about that as far as our person's well-being and addressing stress? Well, I'm, I'm very biased as the owner of, well, I guess my family would chastise me for saying owner, per- perhaps parent or better yet servant to two cats. Um, I, I mean, I think pets are, it doesn't have to be cats, obviously. It could be dogs or hamsters or chinchillas or whatever. I, I think, you know, pets are critical. You know, they're, I mean, especially, uh, especially cats and dogs, but other creatures, you know, that, that, you know, they have emotions too. And I think they can be in, in tune with us as, as well. And, and, um, and so it, and the value of touch, you know, that's something that we're going to miss out on uh, quite a bit while we're all in lockdown. You know, the the less hugging, less other social interactions, you can still pick up and hug your cat or, you know, rub your dog's tummy or whatever it is you do. You can still do all that stuff. And touch is is incredibly important for our, our well-being. So um, absolutely. And if you don't have a pet... Um, I mean, so there are websites galore of, uh, you know, various feeds online of videos of different animals. And, uh, you know, there are all these delightful videos of like the animals being let loose in the aquariums right now, for example. And so, you know, that could be really kind of heartwarming stuff as well. So even if you don't have a pet, uh, those are much more positive, uh, you know, good for emotional health kinds of things to watch online or, or on TV. Are some of the questions that I've been getting in clinic are, you know, what can people do about the worry or stress that they're feeling right before bed and, mm-hmm. and that stress is getting in the way of their sleeping? And I've been asking them to write in a journal things that they're appreciative of or things that they're grateful for or that they just simply enjoy um, and to reflect on that. So I, I guess I'm wondering from your uh, professional opinion and, and personal opinion, you know, what do you think of gratitude journals? It's a wonderful idea. It's, um, it sort of belongs to a school of thought called positive psychology. In other words, you know, what are the things that you can actively do to work on your emotional well-being. Uh, and gratitude is a great um, exercise for that. Um, you know, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything to say thank you to someone or write down, you know, a common strategy people do is think of three things that you are grateful for today and, you know, make note of it or write it down or say it to someone or, or whatever. Um and I think especially if the gratitude is is about a person, you know, I may be grateful for the banana bread that's in front of me, but I should probably be more grateful to uh, my family member who baked the banana bread and brought it to me. So, um, so that uh, I think it's a really powerful uh, personal and interpersonal experience to, you know, to kind of share that gratitude. So I think it's a great idea. I don't know that you have to do it like every night. I think it could be like one of multiple different strategies that, that you have. Um, certainly, you know, other things like turning off the TV or, or turning off the internet, you know, well before bedtime, uh, to try to promote like, you know, that, 
kind of getting into the nighttime routine um, is important. Not drinking alcohol right before bedtime. I, mean, I think the temptation is, oh my goodness, I'm really stressed. I need to wind down. I'm going to have some wine or beer or whatever. Um, th- it doesn't really work. It's actually counterproductive because it may uh, affect sleep. It may affect balance. It may affect memory. So not a terribly good idea. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, kind of scheduling things that are kind of calmer and, um, you know, more emotionally healthy in those one to two hours before bedtime, I think is a great idea to promote some good sleep. Now, what, what recommendations do you have for people with a clinical diagnosis of anxiety disorder or depression who feel they're no longer stable because of their pandemic? And before you answer that, I just want our, our listeners to know that this is not formal clinical treatment recommendations. I guess I'm just asking you, Dr. Walsek, just from your experience, what things that you might mention or recommend in a very general sense. Absolutely. It's a great question. We know that um, you know many of us suffer from anxiety disorders, from depression, from, from other conditions. Um, and a time of stress like this is it's a time of risk for people with anxiety disorders and depression and, and other conditions. So we definitely want to be on the on the lookout for uh, you know maybe the, the condition had been stable and now it's starting to get worse again because the person is fretting and not sleeping well and kind of starting to, to spiral somewhat. So um, one is just monitoring and just just recognizing, okay, how am I feeling? Am I feeling different than, than I have been before? Am I starting to have struggles in my day-to-day life or in my relationships with, with people? Um, Two is reaching out and, and getting help. So um, if you have an established relationship with a therapist, a psychiatrist, primary care doctor, whoever it is um, with whom you talk about your mental health, reaching out to that person and letting them know that you're having a harder time and seeing if they have any, uh, any recommendations for you, um, especially being mindful of... Um, of any suicidal thoughts. So that's, that's a particular concern, certainly for people uh, under stress, um, if they have anxiety disorders or depression, and especially if you're kind of lonely and isolated, that can start start to be an issue as, um, as well. There was, um, there were studies after another uh, uh, epidemic called the SARS epidemic, S-A-R-S epidemic, in 2003, that uh, rates of suicide went up. And they went up kind of immediately afterward. And then as long as one year out, the suicide rates were higher. And it was thought that, and that was especially true in older adults. And so it was thought that some of the isolation, some of the fear, some of the worry that Am I going to be a burden on my family? Those things kind of uh, drove uh, the suicidal thinking. So um, that's a red alert, alarm bell, nine one one kind of situation. If uh, you know if you're developing thoughts of suicide or your loved one is developing thoughts of suicide, you know, stop what you're doing, call nine one one, or if you you know call uh, your uh, your doctor, call someone, let them know this, that's going on, because that's something we need to um, address so that this pandemic doesn't take yet more lives. And I think that's a really important point to emphasize is that even though we are in our homes and we are social distancing and, and in essence isolated, you're not alone. The healthcare system is still there for you. 
And then when you're having those concerning symptoms, there are people on the other end, whether it's the phone or telemedicine or the ER that can help you. Absolutely. And I, and I would also, you know, we've been focusing on anxiety a lot and I've kind of touched on depression, but that's another big one. And it ties into another normal human experience. So sadness. So we all get sad. That's just a normal thing. Um, you know, we get some bad news or we lose someone or something or something doesn't quite meet our expectations. You may get sad. And so that's totally normal. Um, grief. Grief is also normal. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there may be a lot more grief in the coming months. So uh, recognizing those signs of grief. And, and again, unfortunately, a lot of the normal things that we do with grief, like reach out to each, each other, have a ceremony, have a funeral, um, you know, uh, remind ourselves about our social ties. That's going to be difficult in the coming weeks and months with some of the restrictions related to the pandemic. So, um, uh, you know, we may have to think, turn to things like uh, more, you know, online memorials or other ways of still having those rituals that are really important to us. Um, uh, going to 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 uh, to religious services through some sort of you know online or other format. Those are going to be really important to help us with the normal grieving process. So that's all normal stuff. It can turn into depression. So a clinical depression is where someone is sad most of the time and it's affecting their relationships, it's affecting their day-to-day functioning and may lead to some suicidal thinking as well. So in addition to anxiety, depression is going to end up being uh, a, a big issue during the pandemic. And there will be help though. There are people like yourself as well as psychologists and therapists and counselors who are also at home or at work who who eventually will be able to help people. Absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting thing that's happening in kind of the delivery of mental health care that I think folks should be aware of. You know, most of us have very rapidly switched over to either telephone or video interactions with our patients. Um, And it's really, it's, you know, it's, it's been remarkable because it's a way to stay in touch even though you know a, a person can't come into into the clinic, we can still stay in touch by phone or video. And so, th- those you know mental health services are available. And so, if you are struggling, reach out. You may not be able to see in person your therapist or other um, doctor or clinician, but there are other ways to connect, like by phone and by video. Well, and to end our interview today, Dr. Walsek, I guess I would like to ask a question for our listeners with cognitive changes, whether it's mild cognitive impairment or dementia. Do you have any specific recommendations for them or their caregivers as they are also feeling quite anxious and stressed about the pandemic? Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, the, uh, there are significant benefits to be had from trying to maintain social ties as much as possible. So, you know, there's going to be, uh, there'll be less people coming into the home, for example, to help out. There'll be less ability to go out to social gatherings. So trying to maintain as much as possible, whether it's by phone or video or whatever other means, 
um, trying to maintain social ties as much as possible. So that's true both for the folks with MCI or dementia uh, and for their caregivers, uh, because, the, you know, the caregivers are, are going to need that that relationship support, that emotional support as well. Um, I think, you know, we touched on this earlier and in episode one, um, the, the value of routine and trying to kind of maintain normal routine as much as possible, and maybe even find some new routines, some things that you didn't have time for before. Um, you know, maybe again, with the, with television or the internet or radio or other resources, uh, finding some new things to, to add to one's, uh, uh, routine in addition to all the other self-care things that, that we've talked about earlier. Well, that's wonderful information. And for those uh, that are on the website, we'll also have uh, Dr. Walsek's part one uh, there as well. And I guess with that, Dr. Walsek, thank you for being on Dementia Matters and doing these two interviews for us. Absolutely. And, and I really appreciate your attention to this issue. You know, first and foremost, with the pandemic, we have to save folks' lives from the virus, uh, from the infection, do everything we can. Uh, but at the same time, and very soon thereafter, we'll have to be thinking about kind of the psychological consequences of all this. And so, uh, you know, I'm really glad you're getting folks thinking about what we can do to help folks out psychologically. Well, we do anticipate having you on in the future. So uh, be ready for that, Dr. Walsak. Thank you. Look forward to it. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Bonnie Nutkinson and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Organisms by Chad Crouch. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters@medicine.wisc.edu. That's dementiamatters@medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.